Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell. I'm Stephen. I'm Joey. And I'm Paul. And this is a podcast about storytelling. It's 10.30 at night, which is actually almost true here now. But in my story, it's 10.30 at night. And I'm doing a final bedtime scroll through my phone, just looking at my Twitter notifications, seeing if anyone sent me an important text message. And I notice a text from Shields Imaging, telling me that my MRI results are now available. So of course, I click the link. And I'm squeamish. I've always been squeamish. I fainted once during a lunch and learn about back health because this <laughs> hand-drawn picture of the spine was too anatomical for me. <laughs> And I was rushed to the ER where a doctor told me that basically this kind of painting is called vasovagal syncope. And it's something about the vagus nerve uh, freaking out, that's the technical term. Um, and your body is now looking for the quickest way to put your head level with your heart so you can get blood to your head, which is important. Your brain is there. Um, and so because I am squeamish, I decided to skip the images from my MRI and just go straight to the report. And my cranial MRI is fine. This is a huge relief for me, because for months I've been wondering if I might have multiple sclerosis. And then I open the cervical MRI report, not the pictures, and things get a little bit fuzzy. The radiologist who interprets the images has used words like bone spurs and stenosis and bulging discs, and I don't really know what they mean altogether. And actually, I start to get that spotty vision and that whooshing in my ears that tells me that I'm about to faint, except that my head and my heart are already level because I'm in bed, because it's nighttime, and so I don't actually lose consciousness. Instead, I can't stop moving and I can't get comfortable, and my brain isn't that worried about these results, but my body thinks there's a crisis. And so I start screaming for my husband, Adam, because I don't know how to modulate my voice anymore because of this vagus nerve thing. Adam, I scream. This is not an emergency, but I need you right now. <laughs> and he comes running up the stairs because, of course, he heard the screaming. Um, and he immediately tries to figure out what could possibly be wrong and what the emergency is, but there isn't one. So I tell him about the MRI results and that they might be nothing, but that I'm so squeamish about spines that I can't even Google it to make sense of it. And so he takes my phone from me, and he starts to look at the report himself. The report concludes that I have mild degenerative disease of the cervical spine. And I'm writhing around dramatically on the bed because my vagus nerve is so deeply unhappy that my body is still somehow staying obstinately conscious. This is the first mainstream medical test that has ever found anything objectively abnormal about my body. The neurologist who ordered the test is the first specialist referral I've had in five years, five years, of increasingly bizarre symptoms. And during my intake appointment, I told the doctor about my family history, because that's what they always ask you. My dad died at 58 from early onset Alzheimer's disease. And before that diagnosis, he had an essential tremor in his left hand that eventually turned into alien hand syndrome, where your arm just sort of moves around of its own accord. The neurologist told me that that didn't really sound like Alzheimer's disease at all. And we moved on. So I told him about how the skin on my leg sometimes burns and sometimes it hurts to touch. And I told him about sometimes it feels like the nerves in my arms are screaming. 
And sometimes my hands just won't grip the way that they're supposed to. Sometimes my hands and my arms twitch involuntarily, and I wonder if that's how my dad's alien hand got started. I wonder if his degenerative neurological condition that apparently doesn't sound like Alzheimer's disease at all got started this exact same way. So I told the neurologist that when I'm tired, I have trouble walking. And sometimes when I stand up, my heart rate spikes to 145 beats per minute. Right now, it's only like 120. Um, and it stays there until I lie down again. And I told him that I briefly lived in a house with toxic mold, and it gave me a tremor, an incredible cognitive impairment, but that these mostly resolved when I left the house. I knew, while explaining this, that none of these symptoms were apparent during the, mo during the appointment in that moment. When I'm well rested, these things fade into the background. When I drink alcohol, oddly enough, these things fade into the background, but I can't just be drunk all the time. <laughs> and then he did something that all doctors should do, something that all doctors should learn on the first day of medical school. He looked me in the eye and he told me that I wasn't crazy. He said my symptoms were subtle and there might not be an underlying diagnosis for this right now, but that we could run some tests and that we could pay attention. And so the first test comes back and I don't really know what it means and my body has gone into a vasovagal fight or flight fury. And this word, degenerative, is just waiting for a moment when I have time to unpack it. And during the time between that neurologist appointment and my MRI, the whole chronic illness community was abuzz with this news about Jennifer Brea, a filmmaker who made a documentary about her experiences with myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME, which is a disease that you might know as chronic fatigue syndrome. Brea had decided to get fusion surgery in her neck for something called craniocervical instability, and that surgery put her ME into remission. All of my sick friends were now wondering if their problems were caused by structural neck issues too, by this unusual pressure on the, sinus, on the spinal cord, if they could be cured with spinal surgery. So while I'm lying in bed, fidgeting uncontrollably, and trying not to think about my spine at all, because it freaks me out, Adam, my husband, is Googling stenosis. It may or may not explain a lot of my symptoms, he says, because it means that my spinal column is getting narrower which could put pressure on my spinal cord and on my nerves. I start thinking about my damaged vertebrae and about the possibility that a doctor will want to cut my neck open. I cringe and fidget and Adam stays quiet for a minute while I calm down. And I ask him what the treatment options are. And then I ask him not to tell me. And I take a deep breath. He says that cervical stenosis is common in women over 60 and that it may be treated with physical therapy or occupational therapy and yes, even surgery. I immediately picture myself wearing a neck brace at all of these weddings that we're planning to attend over the next few months. I feel dramatic. Just the idea of a neck brace feels like a cry for attention. He finds this published paper from a doctor who had three patients with ME that all went into remission after surgery for their cervical stenosis. And I feel very aware of my unhappy vagus nerve and I try to sh shake the discomfort out of my arms and legs. Adam offers to do this sort of guided meditation to help my body chill out. So we lie side by side in bed, and he tells us to relax our toes, our feet, our ankles. 
By the time he gets to our shoulders, Adam is asleep beside me, <laughs> and I am calmer. This might not mean anything at all. Thank you. get uh, Brianne back on the show and um, so this is a story so uh, this is from September she came she came down intentionally uh, because it was our 50th show it was our 50th show uh, and, and she came down we were doing something special is that or we had a lot of special things going on it was our 50th show uh, we are actually uh, publishing our first book which you can uh, purchase online you know, in, in many different um, places. And um, we uh, were fortunate enough that Brianne actually was able to come for that 50th show and uh, for some of the book stuff because, as we all know, she was there at the very beginning and, and um, the writing group that this event, Stories We Don't Tell, uh, came from was started by her and she was the one that kind of uh, got us involved, and um, so it's always great to kind of bring her back on the show and hear hear from her. I guess at this point we should probably give a shout out. Uh, that if you want to hear Brand's Brand's podcast, you can check out No End in Sight, uh, which is available all places podcasts are found. If you're listening to this podcast, I presume you understand how to find podcasts. I'm if you don't and are listening to this podcast, I want to know how. So you can tweet at Paul Dore uh, to tell him how you listen to this podcast if you have managed to do it without knowing how to listen to podcasts. But we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, the the ways in which storytelling uh, can be can be useful in other facets, and the ways in which storytelling pervades our world, and the ways in which uh, the importance of storytelling ends up becoming uh, so much more than just you know the fact you know it's not. It's not, you know, the height of storytelling is not being on the moth. You know, it is, there is, there is so much more there. Uh, and, and that's sort of what we're, what we're talking about here on the show. And I, I made a mistake of saying that Paul works in storytelling uh, in other ways, because you actually work in regular storytelling uh, as, in the, as, a, as a producer. But Joey, you work in, in storytelling in, in sort of other ways. You sort of take storytelling or use storytelling in other ways. Let's throw to you. Yeah. So as somebody who is like a writer researcher, there's a lot of things I do that involves, um, quote, unquote, storytelling. You know, one of the things that really kind of uh, has inspired us to not only do this episode um, with Brienne's story, but just the work um, that Brienne is doing, um, we find just really inspiring around how she's using storytelling in a completely, uh, again, when she started with us, she was using uh, storytelling in it, or wanted to explore storytelling in a different way than she was used to. And then I think, again, she's kind of, um, you know, taken her own experience and her own lived experience and uh, just kind of like started telling her story, um, as Stefan mentioned, on her uh, podcast and through her writing. I don't want to say she stumbled upon it because that's not fair. I think that she was talking about her, she just started from like, hey, I really need to, um, I want to find other stories of what I'm experiencing. They are not out there, so I'm just going to tell my own story. And through that act, she found this huge amount of people that, that kind of felt the same way, that didn't have a, a place where they, you know, they could, they could, you know, 
hear stories like what they were experiencing in their life. And it's been great to see. I'm just going to throw in there because we haven't said yet, but mm-hmm. her podcast and the current incarnations of what she's working on with No End in Sight is stories of journeys of chronic illness. Yeah. I think, uh, Joey, off mic, sort of like you know, earlier, you alluded to the fact that there is this sort of idea that storytelling is vogue, right? Like the, the, the you can't get away from it right now. There's a level of last like three, four years in which every communication job is basically titled master of storytelling. You know, like there's there, there's become this concept that storytelling is almost it's it's become it's it's a word that has become that that has lost meaning a little bit i think in in communication standards but but also people have i think have understood the importance of being able to you know to craft narrative rather than copy i guess might be the way i would put it i mean it's i feel like over time and the way that we consume so much media we've become immune to to just copy and so the idea of storytelling is is really just in terms of using it as a tool for other things that is not say personal essay writing or personal stories really is just an avenue to um, describe things in a way that is compelling to people and that involves the practice of storytelling but yeah and and from the practice of you know from the that I, I do think that what's interesting is there's that level of the idea of like how do you turn you know, everyday things into some version of a story, right? Like there's there's these sort of basic skill sets and understandings and questions you have to ask yourself that I think do lead back to this this question of what good narrative actually exists as. Yeah, I think it's, I'm just thinking about it as you're talking, but, it, uh, you know, I think storytelling as a practice outside of the art of storytelling, so using it, say, for jobs, involves finding different kinds of arcs or like different pieces that um, that bring people in. I think the arc, though, I think that's it. So the difference between like, you know, 1950s copy for advertising was, you know, like use this soap, it will make you clean. Like if you saw right. that today, that doesn't do anything. Although, although honestly, there's a level of which I would appreciate the directness. You know, like that's true. At some point, that's started, true. I think it's. I think you're hitting on something. At some point, advertising started just lying to you, like, and so and so people stopped believing in advertising because you know it was you know it was rinse repeat rinse you know or wash rinse repeat and it was like that was straight up just to make you use more hair product and so at some point people were like okay I'm no longer into you just I no longer believe you that 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 what you're av- what you're trying to sell me is 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 legitimate and so if you're going to convince me you have to give me something more you have to actually you know you have to you got to give me a story no so like in magazines oh. there'll be there'll be um there's like a there's the word advertisement which is basically it'll be there'll be a page or two maybe four it's like written yes. as a thing yes. it's it looks like the rest of the magazine or newspaper or whatever that's right that's exactly it yes but they they buy into the content. the the format but but they're it's incredibly effective and in fact so much so that neither of you well you knew but like the but like if you flip through a magazine you don't actually notice those pieces of like they have to actually put the word advertisement in it because it's a paid ad. So really this this harkens back to the art of storytelling, right? So what is the what is the value of it? I mean the reason that, you know, at 
as a writer with like, you know, not necessarily writing um, typical storytelling or, or narratives, there is a, the reason that it becomes a thing that we all care about and uh, look for is because of um, the compelling nature of it. How do you use what you have learned from your work in story, like from your work doing this type of personal storytelling in your actual life? I think the, first of all, the essence of like stories we don't tell stories, I think is very different than a lot of just conceptually what storytelling is. And so in particular with stories you don't tell, because a lot of it is sharing things you don't normally share. I find it really helpful to just be comfortable with the uncomfortable stuff in the presence of others. But I think it's also helpful to, in terms of writing, to be able to just abstractly work through like the murkiness of stuff and to be a bit more playful maybe with what um, what ends up actually getting down on the page and then used. Uh, I guess I would say that uh, a vast percentage of the work that I do hinges, at least in some ways, on the attempt to get people to care about things uh and and those things can be anywhere from the stories they're hearing on stage with stories they don't tell or the environment in general or the future generations of this planet uh or you know the the people who are doing work in 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 the professional life that i work in and so i guess for me it's it's this you know to go it's this ability it's it's a, I think I've learned a lot. Like I think, to me, I think honestly, a big, the bigger part of it that's been beneficial to me has been, I feel like I have become a more rounded person from hearing all of these stories. Like I think I have become someone who's been able to understand. Like I don't, I don't personally have the experience that many people do, uh, but. I have heard someone's story about it and I've heard their experience of it and I have so I have I have some idea you know someone has tried to explain this to me before I guess maybe is where I end up and and when you're trying to get someone to care like it, you you can only do it by appealing to their humanity and the only way you can appeal to their humanity is by showing yours uh, and so I think that's it, right? To me, that's it. It's, it's the, it's that bit of, of showing people, um, you know, your vulnerability and the parts you have, uh, with the trust that they will hold it and, and then, and then going from there. Uh, yeah, you would say that there is almost no end in sight, uh, to, um, you know, the stories that are out there that we can tell. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Visit storieswedonttell.org and like our Facebook page for more information about our monthly events. And for more stories, check out our book, available anywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by... I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Stories! <laughs> stories. <laughs> I'm really hoping you can avoid this. <laughs> Good luck, Paul. <laughs> <laughs>